0: And welcome to the latest edition of Match Chats on Leadership. Great to be with you here again as uh, we approach uh, the uh, 11th month of 2020. Been an incredible year, an extraordinary year for sure. And today we're joined by Dr. Robert Alexander. He's a professor of political science at Ohio Northern University. He's kind enough to join us as uh, we meet here today. Dr. Alexander, good morning and welcome to the program. How are you?
1: I'm
0: yeah good to talk to you. yeah great great to have you with us as well and uh it's a timely uh time to be uh be visiting with you as uh we're just literally one week away from uh the presidential election uh that will take place uh on november 3rd uh and that is one week away it's certainly been an interesting year to be true uh, how have you, how have you handled that, uh, from a class standpoint with your students and Ohio Northern university? Well, yeah, it's absolutely been a, a
1: pretty crazy year to, as an understatement uh, for politics, for public health, for so many different, reasons. Um, you know, uh, not a lot of sleep <laughs> that we're handling it. Right. There's a lot of coffee. Uh, it's. You know, they've talked about the permanent campaign for for many years now in in political science literature, and 2020 has been certainly uh, an election where it's nonstop and certainly with uh, Twitter feeds and and all that, you know, it's really hard to escape it and to stay up with it. Uh, Our students have been super engaged uh, with what's going on in the presidential race. Uh, They they, um, uh, feel very much invested uh, in it and of course again you know having an election in the midst of a pandemic is nothing that any of us have ever done before so uh, people are familiarizing themselves with a whole host of things beyond simple simply just you know who are the candidates and and what do they stand for so now we're talking about all kinds of things about how to mobilize uh, voters Mm. and test ballots and what happens if x happens or y happens so um, there's a, there's a lot of unknowns, and that's kind of defined 2020. And uh, and so we're trying to fill in some of those gaps, certainly in the classroom. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, I've been just delighted at how well our students have responded
0: to all of that uncertainty, and uh, they've done it with civility. Yeah. And to me, that's one of the most important things that is lacking
1: in our society today is civility. When it comes to to having a disagreement, uh, for having a different preference over something, and our students have just, you know, unless they're pulling the wool over my eyes in the classroom, uh, they definitely have done such a great job
0: of of responding to one another in civil terms. Yeah, uh, that's that's awfully good to hear about our young people who, you know, frankly have had a uh, an interesting road uh, from two thousand, where you know we have September eleventh at they were born on that watch, and then you have the Great Recession of 2008 and 9, and then you have the pandemic. It's probably not been the easiest road uh, looking at democracy for the younger folks uh, and how this all operates. Um, so uh, I kudos to those young young folks for being able to carry that out. I do I do think that it is very hard to uh, see that civility today, and then be able to you can't have a discussion. All right, let me say it this way. It's tough to have a discussion on sound bites uh, and really have an in-depth in-depth discussion. and we'll talk about the history of the electoral college and how that's impacted our country and how those things have tipped one way or the other uh, because it actually goes way more in depth than just a sound bite. There are all kinds of different factors uh, to it, and it's very it's not very easy. and And I think our social media, uh, although albeit, can be a good thing to, be, to gain information, can also be very poisonous uh, in, our, in our sector today.
1: Yeah, Frank Luntz has a, a great line about uh, communication and, and social media where he says, you know, it's like fire. It can warm you up or it can burn your
0: house down. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. Uh, very true. Yeah. And, he, and he's, he's been, he's been uh, polling and being engaged in this for, you know, many decades. So uh, he would know it firsthand. Uh, All right, so uh, under the Match Chats and Leadership uh, podcast, uh, let's get into uh, when when did you know you wanted to be an educator?
1: Uh, So I'm a first generation college kid. I'm from Foster, Ohio, and um, my parents worked, like many did, at the the Autolite spark plug plant there.
0: Mm. uh,
1: But uh, they knew one thing they were going to send their kids to college. And it was always going to be something that we were going to do. It was never a kind of a, a second thought. But kind of being first generation, I didn't know much about like, what do you do? I always liked civics. I always liked social studies. Didn't didn't love math, mm. uh, like many political science uh, students. And uh, so I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Mm. You know, that's the job, right? If you're going to do a, a, a degree in government or something, you, you become a political become a, a lawyer, so uh, I was geared up for that, and then around my, I started tutoring in college, uh, in my junior, sophomore, junior year, I really liked it, but I was in my head set, you know, what do you do with this, uh, so uh, senior year of college, I had a professor tell me, Ellen Wilson, she tells me, uh, you know, they, they, they can pay you to go to graduate school and become a professor, and I said, well, that sounds kind of nice, but I still couldn't kind of move away from it. And uh, applied to law schools, got accepted. And finally, at the last minute, I said, uh, I don't think this is for me. Hmm. So I started, I'll, I'll teach law. And I thought, that's not a good reason to go to law school. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it was too late to apply to grad school at that point. And uh, so I ended up working years, and and uh, got my graduate uh, applications in, all that kind of stuff. And I, thankfully, I didn't know what the job market looked like for a PhD in political science. I didn't know how much money they made. Ignorance sometimes is bliss. And yeah. probably would have prayed. Uh, And that's something I like to actually talk to, to students about.
0: Sometimes fear can hold you back. And had I known, you know, how difficult it
1: could be, uh, I don't know if I would have pursued it. And uh, I'm so glad that I did. And so, um, yeah, I got my, my degree there at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And
0: really have to look back. Yeah, uh, very good. Uh, yeah, I, when I speak to college students and, and did for many years uh, on a communications front, uh, not so much in the political science arena, but in the marketing and communications, I, I did use that, that old cliche of, of uh, you know, follow your passion and the money will follow. Um, it doesn't always happen that way, but boy, uh, I always talk about the Sunday night blues and you won't have the Sunday night blues if you're doing something that you really enjoy. And I think that's really important uh, for students. Uh, and you found it out firsthand. Uh, so, Dr. Alexander, give us a, a few examples of uh, your early mentors and influences that may have directed you into your path. So, as I mentioned, uh, Ellen Wilson was
1: our department chair there in history and political science at Ohio Northern. And uh, she was the one that gave me my first position as a two. And she was very, very helpful uh, on that front. And I just mentioned how I was a little fearful. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't totally fearful, but I also was a little bit concerned and nervous. Nobody in my family had ever gone to undergrad, let alone graduate school. And uh, she had a heart to heart with me. And she said, well, were you successful in high school? And I said, yeah. Have you been successful here as an undergraduate? Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you be successful in graduate school? Yeah. And I used that line on my own children, on my uh, you know, when you when you fight for something and you, and you work hard, generally, those things do work out for you. So Ellen was a well, she was a major uh, force for kind of just saying, you know, giving me confidence It, it give me that boost of confidence. Yeah, And sometimes you need that. Uh, in graduate school, I was so fortunate to come across Anthony Nouns and Tony Nouns, professor of political science there. And he, he introduced me to a term that I've come to, again, use. You know, I, I like to adopt those things that, you know, successful people do. Yeah. Adopt them for your own and, and modify to, to your own taste. And uh, Tony taught me the term academic dad. And uh, he had an academic dad at the University of Kansas. So he'd kind of be my academic granddad. I, I hadn't met him, but, you know, that those genes, those academic genes kind of flow on to and really an, an academic parent is a mentor and, uh, it, you know, and I, I like to treat my own, my own children uh, and, and, you know, that means you're going to push them. You're, you're going to root for them. Uh, you're going to try and take them as far as you, you, you know, meet them where they're at and take them a little bit further. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because when you have a little piece inside of them, of course you want to see them succeed and, you know, students, they often when they, you know, walk through the commencement line, you know, they're just getting their degree and kind of moving on, but it's the parents, it's the grandparents behind them that are standing a little straighter, right? Their back's a little, that pride is
0: there. Uh, I'll never
1: forget my own grandmother who had an eighth grade education. I I was able to catch a glimpse of her uh, in the crowd when I was graduating. She had no idea what, what, what was going on there. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of getting a little emotional thinking about it right now. Yeah. It's those people behind
0: you. It's not the person that's out front. Uh, You're not out front unless you have people that have kind of been there to support Mm -hmm. you and push you in all kinds of ways. Well, that's well, yeah, very well said uh, for sure. Um, um, So uh, you get in, you you get your master's at at, uh, the University of Tennessee uh, in Knoxville, and then you get your Ph.D., Um, and so it's in political science, uh, what, uh, you, you've now written, you've now written several books. What was it about the electoral college, which we're just a week away from, uh, that you gravitate gravitated towards?
1: It was, uh, kind of just happenstance. I had a professor, another professor in graduate school who approached me and he said, look, uh, nobody knows anything about electors. So when we go vote, we're voting for a slate of electors. These electors then vote about five weeks after you and I vote. That is the actual electoral college. Nobody knows who those people are. Uh, you might see their names, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was probably the, this is the late 1990s. Then would you do a little side project on on just finding out who electors are? No real theory there, just simply descriptive research. Who are they? Uh, so we could kind of get a sense of that. He said, to be a nice footnote in American government textbooks, kind of what's their demographics. So I said, okay, we started doing that research project, but it, like I said, it was a side project. Uh, well, it turned out that individual ended up leaving the University of Tennessee for another position, so the project died with him. Frankly, we don't spend much time talking about Electoral College and, and graduate programs. There's not a lot of research on the Electoral College. It's kind of an afterthought. And so when I arrived at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, or excuse me, at Ohio Northern University, I, I had, uh, a, a, we had a grant project. I said, what well, would be a good grant project that we could get all of our students involved with? It didn't require a lot of background knowledge. And so I picked that project back up there Northern, with undergraduates. Uh, and we surveyed members of the Electoral College uh, from the 2000 presidential election. And we found out all kinds of fascinating uh, information from that that, you know, required us to continue that research. Now, I felt like the program. And again, I tell my students, if somebody reaching out to ask you, can you do it? You find the time to do that, and uh, and so you say yes. You have that hammer ready before they're even ready to use the hammer. That was a lesson that my dad uh, had taught me. You know, working on projects, all kinds of, in all kinds
0: of ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, have you happened to see? Speaking of the 2000 election uh, on HBO, there's a there's a new uh, documentary out called 537, and it's all about the 2000 election uh, and and the what became the 36 days, uh, but but leading up to that, the, just just the different experiences. If you go back to you go back to you know Humphrey and 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 LBJ and Nixon and there was you know the Vietnam War was was a big factor in what was happening in terms of our presidential elections. Uh, you know you go forward with uh, different uh, uh, events in the Cold War and then you get to 2000. What I I forgot all about in the um, uh, in the springtime of 2000 was Elian Gonzalez, the young boy who came over with his mother to America from Cuba, and she died coming over in, uh, in the waters of the Atlantic. And then that big tug and pull between the federal government and South Florida and Cuba, the dad was still in, in Cuba, and uh, all of the different factors with Janet Reno in the, in the, uh, 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 in the uh, attorney general's office, all of that happening had a big impact uh, on that 2000 election for Al Gore, and George W. Bush, and of course it came down to almost a tie, 500 and some votes. I, you know, there's been multiple uh, 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 folks that have done the uh, the audit on that, but somewhere under a thousand votes was the difference. Um, and your students were you were working on that same election, is that correct? So we, when when I got to ONU, we ended up doing
1: we, we did the survey of electors, and again these are the people that that uh, that ultimately select the president. And we did this, we sent the survey out in uh, 2002, 2003. So it was a few years later, but the information that we found speaks to those, those types of issues. So much that was going on in the background, I mean, that election was contested for a variety of reasons and because it was so close, those electors, what we found, were under intense pressure to maintain their vote or to change their vote. Mm. And uh, that was data that really nobody had ever before. Uh, we, we found that, you know, like I said, because the electors vote about a month or so after you and I vote, there's a lot of time there. Yeah. And that is to certify results, to make sure that results are, are certified. And that's what we went through back in, in 2000. Uh, weeks of a bit of uncertainty in the canvassing and the auditing of those votes, and what we found was a a number of those electors, particularly Republican electors, because not only was the vote in Florida close, but the Electoral College vote was close, so George W. Bush won 271 Electoral College votes. Those 271 votes correspond to 271 human beings. Mm you can be a really strong Republican and not like George W. Bush or a really strong Democrat and not like Al Gore. So every once in a while, we have those so-called faithless electors.
0: Mm.
1: And what we found in that survey, so we, we asked him a number of questions, but one of the things that we asked in that in that survey was, do you believe that President Bush was elected legitimately? And then we asked another question, do you think that Florida hurt his legitimacy? On the question of do we think that, you know, he was elected legitimately, 99% of Republican electors said, of course, right? Okay. But there were four Republican electors, two that said no, and two that said that they weren't sure. And two of those four electors were from Florida. Okay? Mm. So we know that there were at least four Republican electors that were uneasy about how things went, went down in Florida in 2000.
0: And the Republicans needed every one of those votes yeah. to take that
1: election in 2000. So this was this kind of behind the scenes uh, lobbying that was going on that nobody had, had seen before. And that's what I was saying, that we had to do a survey after that to kind of find out, is this normal? Do we find that this kind of behavior happens more frequently? Uh, so generations now of, of ONU students have been doing these surveys.
0: Yeah. And, and do you find that... that- that is the case?
1: Surprisingly, yeah. (laughs) So what we found is that uh, in any election, so we started asking the question, did you give any consideration to not voting as expected? So a more direct question. And what we found was about 10% in every election considered not voting the way they were expected to vote. More frequently, that's among those electors losing side They have nothing to lose if they were to cast a faithless vote, Uh, maybe their reputation. But apart from that, it's not going to hurt the outcome of the election. The the truly fascinating piece of this is that they were lobbied. They're lobbied in every election. Uh, Even in 2008, Barack Obama won well over 100 more college votes. Barack Obama had over 10 million more votes than McCain, and yet electors were still lobbied. But they relied in this instance, on the birther question, mm. that Obama was not an American citizen, therefore you should not cast a vote for him for President of the United States.
0: Interesting. Um, so yeah, he won 365 electoral votes and was way up in the popular vote. Uh, so when you you think about, um, we just kind of assume as consumers of of our American democracy that all of those once we cast our ballot and if if uh, uh, X, xyz candidate wins ohio they win the they win the 18 electoral votes uh, what you're saying is is it's not necessarily that cut and dry it's not we haven't had it be real really contended but look out it's a week away and that may be this may be the most which and I'm not asking you to predict that but but we're we're moving in that direction would you say
1: Obviously, the the rhetoric is ratcheted up up among Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, I think that it's interesting because I've been getting calls from the national media on what do we do in a contested election. And I haven't gotten those calls in the past. So I think it tells us a lot about where the kind of mental state is of the American people right now, that we expect that there's going to be it's going to be close and then we expect that uh, there's going to be some controversy surrounding this election. Um, in, in 2016, you know, president Trump, uh, certainly he talked about our candidate Trump at the time, talked about, you know, rigged elections and he talked about rioting in the streets that Hillary Clinton was going to steal the election. I mean, we, we heard that uh, back then. And then what was fascinating that kind of connected to our research is that literally on the the night that Trump, when it became clear that Trump was going to win, electors, those people, started thinking about what are we going to do? You know, is this the guy that we want in office? Actually, back in August, I had written a piece saying that both campaigns, Clinton and Trump, are likely to witness electors that are going to go rogue on them. They were so disliked. By members of their own parties, not just the other party, but within the, their political parties. And so, and that's ultimately what ended up happening. We had a record number of faithless electors in 2016. And in fact, there was a movement in the electoral college to have a different candidate other than Trump become the president. And they weren't looking to have Hillary
0: Clinton become president. But some other Republican, John Kasich. John Kasich was one of them, right? Mitt
1: Romney, Colin yeah. Powell. It was mainly led by Democrats. They Republican votes to, to make that happen. There were two Republicans electors designed their seats rather than vote for Trump. And then there were two more Republican electors ultimately did not cast votes for Trump. And one of which, you know, did a New York Times editorial. Uh, you know Soliciting um, other Republicans a week or two before the election to not vote for Trump. So, you know, you're right. It's, it's not cut and dry. There are uh, 33 states plus the District of Columbia have uh, required pledges of their electors. That's not, Of course, all states. And a pledge is not the same thing as a sanction. And uh, only 14 states have sanctions for electors that break their pledge. So the the Supreme Court, and you no, know, I'm kind of running around <laughs> with all kinds of stuff here, but yeah. this court uh, had a had a uh, a ruling this past year, coming off of that 2016 election because of those electors that were faithless, and uh, and they supported those laws that would limit an elector's discretion, and and uh, they cited our research, you know, this mm. is crazy, they, you know, they cited this yeah. research that. We thought, you know, it's just going to be a footnote. And here they are saying, you know, according to, you know, the research that they're doing there at ONU, we've learned that electors feel X and Y about uh, the Electoral College. And uh, so there are only 14 states right now that if an elector were to to go rogue, there would be some kind of opportunity to remove that elector. Ohio is not one of those states.
0: Interesting. Uh, Visiting with uh, Dr. Robert Alexander, professor at ONU, we're talking Leadership and the Electoral College and the election is one week away from this broadcast. Uh, So when you think of what you just described, uh, do you anticipate that your students, when they become your age, will still be voting in a presidential election where the Electoral College uh, is the actual say of the land? So that's
1: kind of the million dollar question whenever it comes to Electoral College. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's kind of two. One is like who's represented, who's who's not, and then the other is will it ever change? And the Electoral College is one of the most resilient institutions in all of American politics. It's resilient, but also one of the most maligned
0: institutions
1: in all of American politics. There have been nearly 800 attempts to amend or abolish it over time. The electoral college that the framers created fell apart pretty quickly. So what we have today is not what the framers anticipated uh, back in Philadelphia. So it has changed, but it hasn't changed a lot. Mm. The reality is that uh, to amend the Constitution is a very tall task, particularly when you're talking about you know, pre- you know who's going to be president of the United States. Uh, we have had amendments dealing with the electoral college that have uh, moved forward or not statehood, but DC's elector, uh, allowing Washington uh, DC to have three electoral college votes with uh, the 12th amendment, but that was to rectify uh, some defects in that original electoral college. Um, it's hard to see that, that you, know, you can get that kind of momentum unless it's bipartisan. It has to be bipartisan yeah. to get uh, Democrats mm-hmm. and Republicans on board if there is to be a change we did see uh, you had referenced uh, you know
0: the the Humphrey and Nixon back in the you know 1968 yeah um, very tight election yeah very third party candidate you know taking votes uh,
1: in the electoral college and that precipitated a major movement to to get rid of the electoral college
0: yeah. to the point where you know Richard
1: Nixon was in support of getting rid of it. Uh, George H.W. Bush and Gerald Ford were members of Congress at the time, and they both voted on an amendment to abolish the Electoral College in 1969. And uh, that amendment passed the House of Representatives by a wide margin. Over 80% of the House voted to abolish the Electoral College back then. 81% of Americans were on board for a national popular vote in 1968, 1969, Uh, and in fact,
0: it was 66% of Republicans and 64% of Democrats. Wow. So it wasn't a
1: partisan issue. It was filibustered in the Senate by a few small state Democrats and Republicans. And so that kind of speaks to, you
0: know, it's much easier to prevent something from happening when we're talking about legislation
1: than yeah. to create something. So that's the the, 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 the
0: tall out there. And, and those, albeit in the Vietnam era and certainly with some civil social unrest, uh, at the time. And, uh, it, it, similar, similar, uh, situations we're having today. Uh, but no way were we as together, uh, from a, from a, uh, party standpoint, uh, to be able to work together at least in this moment right now. Uh, and for them to be able to do, well, you would have had, uh, president Gore and president Hillary Clinton, if that was, the case um, with that, uh, that that's very interesting. I don't, based on what you just said, I, I would think it'd be a tall tall task at this moment to get bipartisan support on anything uh, re- resembling what happened back in that 1960s and early 1970s in terms of Congress uh, having that happen. I think that'd be a very tall order at this point. You, you, you know, you need to see people to see outcomes where either party could be harmed by it. Yeah.
1: And uh, and I think that that's what would need to happen. And what's really interesting to me <laughs> is you go back to the 2004 election, and it's interesting because a lot of the expectation of today, or what's going to happen next week, reminds me of that election. 2004, we really anticipated we're not gonna know you know, what's gonna happen. We might have this popular electoral college vote split. We're gonna have lawyers determine the outcome of the election and all of that came to pass. But it came to pass because 2% of Ohio voters, if 2% of Ohio voters had changed their minds and voted for John Kerry rather than George W. Bush. And we find that three to 4% of Americans are under, like literally make their mind up the day of the election. Wow. Okay. It's conceivable, but had 2% of Ohio voters changed their minds in 2004, George W. Bush would have won 3 million more votes than John Kerry, but John Kerry would have won Ohio and Electoral College. Yeah. So under that scenario, it would have burned both parties in back-to-back elections, and I think then we would have seen a, a major push to say,
0: what are we doing? yeah it, that's very interesting, yeah the, uh, one 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 uh, person described it as if the uh, Ohio Stadium on a Saturday afternoon when Ohio State plays Michigan, if those votes would have changed, John Kerry would have been the president uh, at the time. and I think if if I recall Carl Rove uh, and uh, other folks uh, the the big push in Ohio was the evangelical vote with regards to gay marriage that that was on the ballot that year and really really pushed george w bush over the top in ohio or at least one factor there but that's really interesting to see you would have back-to-back elections and then maybe somebody would have said maybe maybe both parties would have said boy it's time i do think the demographic shifts that are happening uh do not necessarily favor the republican party going forward just based on demographics uh, and so I think it would be real hard to get that to change at, at this moment.
1: So there's there's a couple of things from that perspective. I mean, first of all, you go back to that 2004 election and you can say it's not like Republicans can't turn out the vote across the country. Yeah. Right. So, you know, just because you have a popular vote doesn't mean that one party is going to dominate that in perpetuity. Even these elections, they're not national votes. I mean, they're focused on certain certain areas and that's the yeah. reality so it's it's almost mythical to say that you know who won the the national vote in any
0: in any of these elections because they're not campaigning yeah for the national vote so uh, on the demographics there's kind of
1: i'm of two minds on this on the one hand you know we see that you know it's like ohio and, and, and wisconsin and minnesota and pennsylvania tend to kind of be moving more and more uh, graphically toward the republican party Uh, Michigan but on the other hand you see that states like Texas and Georgia are moving drifting more to the Democratic Party and if indeed that happens you know Democrats could lock up the Electoral College with 16 or so states because of where those voters are in those states
0: Yeah. and then Democrats might say maybe this Electoral College isn't so bad (laughs) good point
1: wait a second we're getting locked out of these, you know, contests because Democrats are winning in California New York and Texas and Georgia and
0: some of those places. That's so. well said. Yeah, that's that's a very good uh, look at it. Um, so two books that I'm reading right now, one is Steve Kornacki's The Red and the Blue and kind of the what what started even back. We'll just talk started back maybe in that Nixon Humphrey uh, election with George Wallace and then moving forward. Uh, all the way to see where we've, it, it's really a, a prism into why we're tribal today. Uh, having said that, uh, the second book that I have not started but did purchase is The Politics Industry. And it talks about um, really a broken, kind of a broken system, uh, not necessarily in the electoral college, but just in the system itself. Uh, and they talk about ranked voting and they talk about uh, the potential of of um, uh, of uh, what's the uh, uh, your, your choice ranked voting uh, where you have the primary, it doesn't matter what party you're part of, the top five move to the to the finals, and then you do your top five choice ranked voting on that. Um, the other question that I would have on that is proportional electoral voting uh, is another concept. Is that anything that we would see? That you could see because some do it in Maine and Nebraska now, is uh, vis-a-vis the congressional districts. You see any of that happening more likely than just going to a straight popular vote?
1: Oh man, man, you you are just hitting all of my fun stuff that I like to
0: talk. <laughs> <about>. <laughs> well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I read my books.
1: <laughs> well, so I'm doing a, a series of, of columns right now on the Electoral College. Uh, and, uh, and and the one that I'm doing right now is literally on, you know, can we see a move to district representation
0: as yeah. representation? interesting. Where, where, where can the folks find that? Where can the audience you know, find that? I'm it? doing these. It, it, it's been kind of funny
1: because everything's been so politicized, but I'm doing these at CNN.com. Okay. One of the things that I get uh, on on uh, in response is the people can read past a headline and actually read the articles is that I like to pride myself on, try, on trying to publish opinion pieces without really trying to give up, you know, where I necessarily stand on it. Yeah. I, I want people to think, I, I, you know, most of these, you know, you just mentioned the tribalism. If you bring up any, Goya beans
0: have become politicized. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Everything's Everything is political, but at the same time, you know, you, you don't have to... If you can recognize that filter and, and try and kind of uh, acknowledge that, you can also step away and say, maybe I can learn something by just examining the, the facts. And the, the, the last piece that I wrote was literally that Republicans took aim at the Electoral College kind of recently because they felt like they were getting shut out of Electoral College victories. But you see Democrats are, are angry at the Electoral College just a few years ago, a number of Republicans were arguing that maybe we should get rid of the Electoral College. Hmm.
0: And one of the ways to change it was to move to district representation. So under that scheme, what happens is, so in
1: Ohio right now, if you win a state by the state by one vote, you get all of those Electoral College votes. Yeah. So that's to his winner take all. And that kind of skews results. It really doesn't reflect what happened on the ground. Yeah. You know, you get the, the full bounty, but maybe it's completely split in the state. Then in Nebraska, they said, "Look, no candidates are coming here. Nobody's visiting us. So let's have this district representation. And what that allows for is, if you win a congressional district, you get an electoral college vote. Whoever wins the popular vote in that state gets those bonus two Senate votes. So." Uh, Barack Obama won a congressional district in, in Nebraska in 2008. In Omaha, yeah. Nebraska otherwise. Donald Trump won a congressional district in Maine in 2016. So after Obama's second victory in 2012, a number of state legislatures, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, started looking and saying, hey, maybe we should move to district representation Because Democrats are turning out in droves in these presidential elections, and we could at least guarantee some representation in Electoral College if we go to district representation. Yeah. So those were all Republican legislatures, okay? You know, you're looking at the system and you're trying to game that system however it's going to benefit you. Democrats would do the same types of things. Sure. If we were to move to district representation, I think what we would find is hyper- hyper-partisanship in the gerrymandering process. Mm. It would be gerrymandering on steroids because it would make those congressional districts more important. Uh, you would find very few swing congressional districts. Mm. Move from swing states to swing districts. Um, I think it could be tough to do that. It could invite, depending on how the states do this, it could invite third-party spoilers back into the process. Yeah. The choice voting would be one means to prevent that. Uh, I do think that it's hard to not look at our political system right now and and see that it's certainly broken in a lot of ways. Uh, And so this is why you're hearing things like ranked choice voting, multi-member congressional districts Mm. kind of show that balance of what's actually happening in a congressional district, that it's not all or nothing. You might have a very divided congressional district, and so that way you get more of those preferences actually heard, and you you begin to negotiate again, right? And yes. there's just you know the the, the incentive to negotiate just isn't there under our current processes.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. It's very interesting. Um, it, it it just strikes me that uh, you said it. You win by one vote, uh, and you'll just never you'll never see a candidate uh, go into a certain state when they actually could maybe win x amount of votes uh if it was proportioned that way and that would give in theory it might give people more representation uh because people because it's just not a uh, like you'll never see you know joe biden's never going to wyoming uh he's never going to idaho he's probably not going to montana even though that's they they have a representative uh the senate john testers their senator he's a democrat um that that in a perfect world it'd be nice to see that where you get that proportioned uh and that uh that would be part of it but boy that those are really uh professor those are really really good thought processes um you just don't see any of it changing in the near future right the what what well, we and, have what's
1: what's really fascinating about what you just said is Donald Trump's not going to those places either.
0: Yeah, right, right. Republicans right. are going to, if if we if the outcome of the state is pretty clear, no candidate is going to those states. Yeah. And so what we find, 2016, 94% of the campaigning took place in just 12 states. Right.
1: So arguments for the electoral, and none of them were the, the least populated states, none of them were rural states. And so for those, the, the you know, the people that say, well, the electoral college, you know, fly over america would be forgotten nobody's campaigning in fly over america right no, all right now under the current process yeah so and i think i'm pretty sure you would see kind of like what you see in ohio if we had a a a, a more open vote whether it's a national popular vote or not candidates would go where the votes are and for republicans and democrats they're gonna go urban suburban They're going to go where their voters are. That doesn't mean that they're going to flock to the posts. They will go to those places, but there's people there. But they're also going to go turn out voters in in places like, you know, West Central Ohio. I mean, how do the campaigns campaign in Ohio right now? Donald Trump or, or Mike Pence or Joe Biden or Harris, they're going to spend all of their time in the media markets that are Cleveland or Cincinnati they're hitting, you know, the Lima market as well because they want to be able to connect with voters there. They know that they have voters in those areas. Frankly, it's it's our political parties that we identify with a heck of a lot more than we do with our geography. You know, we consider ourselves Democrats or Republicans or independents far more so than we do Ohioans unless it's like, you know, Buckeye.
0: <laughs> you know, the Buckeyes are- Saturday, yeah. It's our, our politics are determined by our partisanship, yeah.
1: right? And that's really what defines kind of our ideology these days. And you know, parties nationalized; they're, they're not state by state um, so much anymore. There was a day when that was the case, but that's not necessarily true today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you think that uh, there there's been? It used to be the cradle of presidents, Ohio. Why do you think that Ohio hasn't had a candidate for um, many, many years in terms of being, I'm talking about, on a major party ticket?
1: Well, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, Ohio has, has been the cradle of, of presidents. Um, you know, there's, I think,
0: the, the biggest, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, there's only going to be one person yeah. that's going to win, you know, win the nomination. Right. And uh, it, it can be pretty idiosyncratic
1: it's not as if we haven't had candidates that have percolated toward the top. They just haven't been able to kind of, you know, get, get to that finish line. Obviously John Casey in, in uh, 2016 was a, was, it was, was a five candidate. Sure. Um, you always hear a lot of talk about uh, Ohio uh, as being a, a very important state to kind of, you know, Get out the vote, and so one of the things that you you hear, I mean, Portman's name was floated about back in 2016 as a potential vice presidential running mate. Sherrod Brown, Sherrod Brown, people really wanted to draft Sherrod Brown to run for president this year, and yeah. he wasn't. and So uh, it's it's tough. Uh, it, it but Ohioans themselves in the public eye when it comes to you know recruiting uh, who who might be a kind of a a a worthy candidate for the presidency
0: yeah uh okay so let's uh let's finish up on a couple things we're visiting with uh dr robert alexander professor at onu he's the author of representation and the electoral college oxford uh, university press 2019. um so your students what what do you want your students to know about all this conversation that we're having not only about the Electoral College, but maybe the alternatives and where we stand today coming from all the way back you talked about in Philadelphia with the founders. What do you want your students, what's the definition of success for you uh, that your students know about coming out of your class?
1: Oh, boy. I I want them to think. (laughs) I I want them to approach issues with an open mind uh, and kind of peel away some of that partisanship and the preconceived notions that they might have. They're thinking about things in a, in a deep fashion as objectively as possible. It always used to frustrate me, even as a student, that I would hear analysis from, you know, political science, my fellow students, but it was coming from a place of partisanship. And and I like to, to think of myself to be as objective as possible when I'm analyzing something. We all have our, our preconceptions. Of course we do. But, you know, if... If, if we see that a Democrat is doing something and we go, wait a second, under this circumstance, would a Republican do the same thing and vice versa? Uh, that I think that that is certainly a version of success is to, to kind of have an open mind when you're analyzing things, um, you know, kind of on the research side of things, don't take no for an answer, keep pushing. Uh, yeah. Even the research that we did, and I and I, Frequently, uh, you know, when you're surveying electors, or you're trying to get something published. All people see are the successes, right? You don't see the failures. Mm. You don't see like when somebody kicks you in the teeth and you feel like giving up. And, uh, and, and they need to know that. Yeah. And and sometimes you know you can you learn from those those failures and you say okay they were right about this. I need to change this or there's gatekeepers out there and sometimes the gatekeepers don't want to let you in. Yeah. Got to keep pushing.
0: And, uh, you know, even when you're saying, you know, Oxford university press, I gotta tell you, it was really hard to publish the first book on electors.
1: And and I had been told, no, Oh, this is the most fascinating stuff.
0: It seems so inconsequential. And you're like, Oh, gut punch. Yeah. And, Kept pushing for that, but the
1: Oxford one is like the top of the line, and that's because I kept pushing on the first book. Yeah. And now it just it will become easier, right?
0: Sure. Um,
1: so you just don't take no for an answer. You just keep pushing it. You know, in a competitive environment, you know, it's just I played a lot of sports growing up, and uh, you know, you, you got to hustle, and mm. that's true in academics. It's true at the workplace. You got to keep your hustle on because somebody else is is hustling too, and for
0: sure.
1: uh, you know, play through the whistle
0: yeah for sure uh all right uh well I, you know you reminded me of something there i've been reading lyndon johnson's uh uh books from robert Caro, which are enormous books they're thousand pages and um it, it was interesting i i actually uh last summer two summers ago i was in new york city and on the way in i was listening to robert Caro's uh on audio and then I was reading his the the same book as well, the passage of power, Kennedy to to Johnson, and uh, Carol always talks about turn keep turning the page, keep turning the page till you find something in in research, and you reminded me of that with what you're doing with your students, uh, which is very admirable. Uh, ironically, I was up in the Upper West Side of New York, and I just arrived that day, reading that book, listening to that book. I run into Robert Caro and his wife on the Upper West Side of New York wow. and had a brief conversation and told him how much I enjoyed his book. And he said, what do you think of the audio book? It's not my voice. They wouldn't they wouldn't want my voice. And I said, oh, I actually really enjoyed it. But, you know, it was just, it was really, I, you know, when you think things are meant to happen or that something happens in the universe, uh, that was really a, a, a weird coincidence, but a very fruitful one to be able to visit with he and his wife, Ina. Uh, And so I followed him a lot and uh, you do the research with your students um, and and within your classes is just outstanding. Um, Give give us just as we exit here, Dr. Alexander, give us just your sense of, in order to kind of bring our country and you talked about your civil discourse and um, your Institute for Civics and Public Policy that you founded, what what would bring us more together as a as a country?
1: So it's it's uh, that's again great question because we seem super divided right now, and the reality is it's so I'll share a little story real briefly. Uh, uh, you know, Facebook is not a good place for politics, right? Yeah, like yeah. You, know, you throw something on politics on Facebook and it just mm-hmm. turns into all kinds of nonsense. And so I, I kind of had enough, and I, I just posted something, uh, you know, more family pics, less politics. And one of the most fascinating things happened. All my friends, and my, by my friends I'm talking about, former from years ago, family members, acquaintances, professors, all that stuff, started posting pictures in the replies. And within, you know, a couple of hours, there were 100 or so photographs of these families, Of people that I've seen arguing back and forth on Facebook you know and the reality is they're human beings yeah they care about their country they care about their family they care about paying their mortgage they care about their health all that kind of stuff they're just human beings and sometimes we need to remember that that doesn't need to be so tribal and um, you can disagree with others and you don't have to be disagreeable. Mm. There's a way to have a conversation with other people. Taking your ball and going home is a solution. So we do need to have difficult conversations. If we're not prepared to have those conversations, I think social media makes that harder because you can, A, you hide behind the screen, but B, you can surround yourself with people that just think just like you. Yeah stay in that ecosystem, you're not going to, we're not going to make progress. So we need to kind of push one another to, 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 to feel uncomfortable from time to time. Hmm. How about feeling attacked? You know, everything doesn't have to be an attack, but you can be uncomfortable. It's okay to have to defend, you know, why you think a certain way and to ask somebody else why they think a certain way. And I, the data will tell us that most of us agree on most things mm. <laughs> but the squeaky wheels are the ones that are driving you know, polarization yeah and uh which is one of the reasons for ranked choice voting and multi-member districts frank we're going to have to have i think structural change to change it politically uh, we can also have these conversations as individuals within our own families you know we asked a, a question we've been doing these polls we asked a question, do you think that uh, – Great Lakes Poll – do you think that, you know, has politics been difficult in your family and personal relationships, like if you lost, you know, uh, friends? And like 80% were like, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's not
0: – No, that's know, not good. You can
1: disagree and still, mean you know, love somebody.
0: It's that's so right. Bad. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I feel like I've had that my whole life, meaning, um, you know, that uh, I might be – uh, on one side or the other, um, and yet the one side that I'm on, most of my friends that I've been around happen to be on the other side, but have, are the dearest of friends. Uh, I just think recently it's become way more politicized, and part of that is, you said, social media and then the silos we live in, where we only—some we only some, some people may have no idea— that there's an alternative to something that's on the other side of their issue, because they don't see it. They they would never go to that publication, uh, or that 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 TV channel, uh, or that podcast. They're just in their they're living in their own zone, um, and that's why I think you know what you're doing. The more conversation, the more dialogue uh, that you give your students, uh, the the better. So. Uh, Dr. Alexander, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, I know we, we only met yesterday um, via phone, and uh, I, I can't thank you enough for being a part of this uh, podcast. Uh, if, if, you had, if you just thought out loud just in terms of leadership, uh, because this typically is a leadership column, um, but this is a fascinating issue for leaders, um, of, the, of, of all the presidents from your lifetime, uh, who do you think, um, you know, just a couple examples of what leadership looked like to you?
1: Oh, well, you know, I think it's one of the things that I think is really important in any kind of a leader is empathy. Hmm. Being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, being able to kind of feel for, for other folks. Uh, there's one moment in particular that stands out to me. I've got three daughters, and at the time they were all in school. And uh, you know, it was another school shooting, mm. and, uh, and and Barack Obama gave a a speech, and he he started tearing up, yeah, because you feel that like he was a father at that moment. And uh, the thing about Obama that's interesting is that there's a lot of people that you know certainly don't like his politics, but generally speaking, thought he was a decent human being. Mm. And and I think that that moment of empathy
0: certainly came through. Yeah. Uh,
1: George W. Bush uh, had that kind of, that empathy as well. Uh, you know, his moment there, September 11th, uh, standing in the rubble and saying, you know, you know, I hear you, America hears you, the world hears you.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, those moments there where you can kind of show that empathy um, and some vulnerability, which politics doesn't typically reward that, right?
0: Yeah. And that's problematic. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. That's so well said. Yeah, that's well said. Great reflections there. All right. So Dr. Robert Alexander, he's the author of uh, uh, multiple books, but this one, uh, the 2019 Representation in the Electoral College, Oxford University Press and a professor at Ohio Northern University, the great Ohio Northern University here in (laughs) West Central Ohio. Uh, It's it's an awfully uh, great pleasure to be with you today. And thanks for spending your time with us. Uh, we'll check back in after the election and look forward to uh, uh, getting your thoughts on what actually, hey, hopefully it isn't like 36 days like Gore and Bush or more than that. We, we deserve uh, something a little better in 2020, don't we?
1: Well, a lot of the aficionados and a lot of the political nuts would love to see some kind of contested election. I am not one of them.
0: Let's get this done and, and start moving forward. Exactly. Uh, thanks again, uh, Dr. Alexander. Always a pleasure uh, And uh, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. This is the latest on Matt Childers. This is the latest match chats on leadership. And you can see the column Sundays in the Lima News.